Okay, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. We're going today to resume our study in the book of Hebrews. We took a little break over Easter, and then we had that Acts 1-8 series. So today we're back in Hebrews chapter 5. Let me, uh, let me review the book quickly. We don't know exactly who wrote the book, and we don't know the specific recipients. We know the book was written sometime around between 60 and 70 A.D., written before the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., so it's written around there sometime. We know that Nero would have been the Roman emperor uh, during that time. He would bring persecution on later uh, after uh, the fire in Rome is when persecution uh, really hit. And we know that Peter and Paul during this time would have been imprisoned in Rome. They were put to death around 65 A.D. We do know that the writer of the Hebrews, although we don't know his name, we know he had a tremendous grasp of the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. In the book of Hebrews, there are 30 direct quotes from the Old Testament as he applies them to Jesus. And there are 50, over 50 allusions to the Old Testament. So it's not a direct quote, but when you're reading it, you know this was something said in the Old Testament. This guy had a grasp on the Old Testament. And his theme throughout, as he's weaving in and out these Old Testament verses, his theme from uh, chapter 1 to chapter 13 of Hebrews is this, Jesus Christ is supreme. He's greater than. Uh, title of our series. He is greater than heaven's best. He's greater than earth's best. He's greater than the Old Testament system. He's greater than the high priests. We'll see that today in chapter 5. The writer begins in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, with what are called seven excellencies of Jesus. Now, a lot of times in writing, you kind of start with an introduction and you work up to the climax, right? But it's like the, re- the writer says, I can't wait to get to the climax. It's going to be right from the very beginning. Here are the seven excellencies of Jesus. Number one, he is the heir of all things. He owns everything. He has it all. He's the creator of all things. There's nothing that was created that he did not have his fingerprint on. He's the creator of all things. He's the, he's the radiance of God's glory. Uh, you want to see what the, the beauty of God is? You just look at Jesus, and he's also the exact imprint of God's nature. You want to see what God's like? You look at Jesus. He's a conductor of the universe. Uh, the writer says he upholds the universe with his powerful hand. Uh, it's like an orchestrator. Uh, it's like a conductor of an orchestra. He gets all the, the pieces, the music, the parts in place. And when it comes out, it's a beautiful, a beautiful orchestration. He is the, the conductor of the universe. He made purification for sin. We'll see that uh, today again as that point is driven home over and over in the book. And then uh, the writer says he sat down at the right hand of God. When when do you sit down, by the way? When your work's done, right? So Jesus completed his work. He did it all. There was nothing more for him to do in the work of salvation, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, chapter 4, verse uh, 14, the writer introduces Jesus with the new name. He introduces Jesus as our great high priest. We actually looked at this uh, on Easter, uh, and the writer says this about Jesus. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, might receive, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So here in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, the writer introduces Jesus as the great high priest. So what he's going to do now in chapter 5 is to explain how Jesus is the great high priest. What does that mean? What does that look like? And so he begins, he does that in the first 10 verses of chapter 5. That's what we're going to look at today. In, in verses 1 through 4, he explains what the Old Testament uh, high priest did, the, the character, uh, the qualifications of the Old Testament high priest. Then in verses 5 through 10, he compares and contrasts that with Jesus. So let's just work our way uh, through this passage. So many of the qualifications are, of, the, of the Old Testament high priest are seen right in verse 1. Let me read the passage, then we'll work our way through it. Every high priest, the writer says, is selected among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, and he does that by offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. Man, there's a lot there. Let's just go through it. First of all, the high priest, one qualification had to be a man. He had to be a human. Now, that's pretty basic stuff, but it's very important. He was, he was chosen from among the people. He couldn't be an angel. He couldn't be some superhuman. He had to be chosen among the people because he had to be one who understood the people well. He represented the people, we'll see in a second. And so he had to understand the the feelings of the people, the experiences of the people, and that's going to be critical that he had to be a man. It's going to be critical when we come down and compare that to Jesus. Secondly, the high priest was appointed by God. He couldn't appoint himself. No one else was supposed to appoint him. He had to be appointed by God. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4, 5 verse 4 says this, no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called or appointed by God, just as Aaron was. Why would he mention Aaron? Because Aaron, Moses' brother, was the first high priest. And in Exodus chapter 28, it's God who appoints Aaron as the first high priest. And all the priests from that time are to be in the line of Aaron, the line of the tribe of the Levites. Uh, His successor received a divine appointment, but always had to be through the line of Aaron. So so no human could simply assume the office. There were two instances in the Old Testament when two guys tried to. In in 1 Samuel 13, Saul tries to assume a duty of the high priest. And there are some serious consequences for that. In fact, that's when God says, I'm done with you. Uzziah, another king in 1 Chronicles 29, he tries to assume uh, some responsibilities of the high priest. He gets in a lot of trouble, a lot of consequences from that. Now, what's interesting is, in the time of Christ, and and when this book was written, sadly, religion and politics don't mix, do they? And when you do, you always get in trouble. And in the history of Israel during that time, 
the high priest had become a political prize. Offered to the highest bidder for a favor bestowed on an influential family. That was happening within Judaism. So when the readers read this, they probably thought to themselves, oh man, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be, appointed by God, but look what it is now. In fact, Rome ruled the world, and in the history of Rome ruling Israel, they would remove and appoint high priests at will. So power corrupts, right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Politics and religion we see in history always result in issues. So, had to be a man, had to be selected by God. Number three, the high priest served in matters that related to God. Simply, he was a mediator. He represented uh, a man to God, and he represented God to man. He stood in the gap. He was the one who stood in the gap, and he stood in the gap, number four, by offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, he was a man himself, so he had to sacrifice, make sacrifices for his own sin, but he was the one who took the gifts and sacrifices before God. Interesting here, the word gift refers to uh, bloodless uh, offerings, so grains and those types of things. The word sacrifice is blood offerings, animals. So he takes the grain offerings, he takes the animal sacrifices, and he takes those on behalf of the people to God. Now, why does he have to do that? Because back in Genesis 3, man sinned against God. And God said the wages of sin is what? Death. Something has to die because of sin. And so as God was preparing his people for Jesus, in the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system. Sacrifices had to be made on behalf of the sinner, and they had to be made as the substitute. So a person would bring their lamb, their goat, their bull, or if they were very poor, their their dove, their birds, and they would give it to the high priest. Sometimes they participated in the sacrifice, and that high priest represented them before God. There had to be a substitute. There had to be a death take place for sin. By God's grace, it wasn't the sinner. It was a substitute. And it was the high priest who had to take those before God. Now, he was a man, so he had to present sacrifices for himself before he could before he could do that for the people. Look at, look at uh, chapter 5, verse 3. Because of this, because of his weakness, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. In Leviticus uh, chapter 16, God told um, Aaron, you're to offer a bull for yourself, sacrifice for yourself before you can go offer it for the people. Here's the last one. He had to be able to deal gently with sinners. Look at verse 2. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his... That's verse 3. Let's read verse 2, all right? Uh, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, that word in Greek, deal gently with, it's a fascinating word. It's made up of two... uh, um, there's uh, There's a contrast within the word itself. It's the word pathos. 
and it means emotion. So on one hand, it means, it means kind of flying off the handle, anger, man, you're passionate. There's pathos over here. But then in that same word, they put an A in front of it, which means no pathos, no passion. And so you got passionless over here, right? And then flying off the handle over here. And when you put those two together, the Greek word means you stand in the middle. You are, um, it's kind of where justice and mercy meets. So on one hand, the, the high priest couldn't be overly passionate, couldn't, couldn't be angry at sinners that kept coming uh, with their gifts because they had sinned again. He couldn't say, can't, are you guys can't believe it. You're back again, you sinners. Uh, don't come back. I'm, I'm angry that you keep doing that. He couldn't do that. On the other hand, if there was a high-handed sin, if someone committed murder or someone did something like that, he had to bring judgment down on them. And so he couldn't be passionless. He couldn't just say, oh, eh, you know, you were having a bad day. Someone, you know, really got you upset and you murdered them. But you were having a bad day. Let's just let it go. He couldn't do that. So he had to bring justice on the high hand, sometimes penalty of death. Justice on high-handed sins, but not get too angry with sinners committing error. He had to deal gently where justice and mercy meets together. And Scripture says he has to do that because he himself is beset with weakness. He gets it. He knows on a given day he could have done the high-handed sin. He knows on a given day he could be that one who keeps coming back with those same besetting sins. And that we see, that weakness we see from the very first high priest. Remember Aaron. Back to Aaron. Remember uh, Aaron is appointed the high priest and then uh, uh, Moses goes up into the mountain and he gets the law. You guys know the story. Moses is up there. God says, you need to go back down. He goes back down. He hears the people, they're parting. They're doing all kinds of stuff and they're, they're worshiping a golden calf. So Moses goes to Aaron and he says, in, in uh, Exodus 32, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? You are representing them. You're their media. What did they do to you that you brought such a great sin on them? And Aaron said, well, let not the anger of the Lord burn hot. You know the people there set for evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, I mean, Moses, you've been up in the mountain for a long time. The man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's become of him. So I said to them, uh, let any of you who have gold take it off. And they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire. And Moses, I do not know how this happened, but it came out of calf. I just, I am still baffled by that. You got to think right after Aaron said that, he thought, that was kind of a stupid thing to say, right? He was weak. Weak in leading the people. So the... So there was a weakness in the high priest, and that's why God told him in Leviticus 16, you've got to offer sacrifice for yourself before you offer sacrifice for the people. Okay, so those are the five qualifications then for the Old Testament high priest. That's just a setup. The writer's just setting us up because now he's going to say, now I want you to meet. I want you to know who the great high priest is. I want you to see 
how the great high priest meets and exceeds every qualification. Number one, Jesus was fully God, fully man. He doesn't say that in this passage, but he's already told us that in the seven excellencies. Jesus was fully God, fully man. That is critical for us to understand. Anything else is heresy. Jesus is fully God and fully man. In being God, he has all the humanity that we have. In being man, he loses none of his deity. There's no one like him. That's why in a little bit, he's going to tell us he's the source of eternal salvation. Fully God, fully man. Secondly, Jesus was appointed by God. Look at verses 5 and 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. Think about that. He's God, but he didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he uh, says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now some cool things are happening here. Two important truths are being explained. By the way, when you're reading the, the New Testament and you see an Old Testament verse in the New Testament, certainly the verse is used to make the specific application, but the writer is assuming or presuming that the readers, particularly these Jewish readers, knew the whole passage. That make sense? So he's not going to, this comes from Psalm 2, he's not going to put all of Psalm 2 in there But he knows as soon as he says Psalm 2, his readers know all about Psalm 2. And his readers would have known Psalm 2 was a royal psalm. It was was sung at coronations for the kings. And so a lot of times uh, in the Old Testament, when when there's a prophecy, it will apply directly in that day, but but not all of it will apply. There'll be something in there that says, boy, something's got to be in the future here. And that's what happens with Psalm 2. It was sung when David was coronated, when the kings were coronated. But there was a verse in there, and the people would have known in this royal psalm, there's a verse in there that cannot apply to a human king. It's got to apply to someone else. It's got to apply to Messiah. It's, um, it's verse 8. Verse 7 says, I, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's the verse he uses here. But verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations, the nations, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Not, I will make Israel your heritage. That would have been just for the kings of the Old Testament. But I'm going to make the ends of the earth your possessions. Now, who does that apply to? None other than the Messiah coming. That's why this is not only called a royal psalm, but a messianic psalm. It's pointing toward Jesus. I'm going to make one is going to come. I'm going to coronate him as a king. I'm going to crown him as king. And, he, and every knee is going to bow one day. He is going to be the king over the ends of the earth. The earth is his possession. So in Psalm 2, uh, the writer says, Jesus is our king. He's our coming king. And then there's this other truth in Psalm 110, that's uh, listed here in in verse 6, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That comes from chapter, or Psalm 110, uh, verse 4. And there is this 
King Melchizedek. Now, we're going to get to Melchizedek in uh, chapter 7. He's going to be explained in chapter 7, so we'll have a lot more time to talk about him. But for now, Melchizedek is this kind of mysterious king that we read about, the king of Salem, king of peace. The word Salem means in Hebrew. He's this mysterious king who also served as a priest. And in Genesis 14, Abraham meets him and offers sacrifices. He offers sacrifices for Abraham. And so we're going to see more about him later on, but he's, 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 a, he's a different order. And the writer is saying that Jesus is a priest, not like the high priest who, you know, they live and they die and they live and they die and they live and they die. But Jesus is not only our king, but he is a, the priest forever. And he's not of the order of Aaron. That was the human order. I got another order for you, the writer says here. He's after the order of Melchizedek. He is after the order of this one who was not like Aaron. And his uh, being king and his being priest, it is going to last forever. One more thing about Jesus here, uh, the third one. Jesus was able, just like the qualification for the Old Testament priest, Jesus was able to deal gently with sinners. Let's work through this. Look at verse, um, let me read verses 7 through 9, and then I'll just work through them. In the days of his flesh, uh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears who, uh, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. By the way, it's the only time in Scripture where the subject is Jesus and the verb is learn. Nine, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, let's work through that. When Jesus was on earth, living in the flesh, the writer says he offered up loud cries to the one who could save him. He offered up, uh, what's he say, loud cries and tears. Now, when do you think that would happen in Jesus' life? You might think Gethsemane. That would the Garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion. That'd be one uh, at the at the at the uh, uh, grave of Lazarus. Jesus cried uh, right before he went into Jerusalem for the last time. He wept over Jerusalem. But more than likely, the writer is thinking about the cross. He's thinking about the cross when Jesus hung on the cross and in a loud voice yelled out, "My God, My God." Why have you forsaken me? At that moment, that, this mysterious moment, God the Father, who cannot look on sin, turns his back on his son who is dying for sin and has on his shoulders every sin you've committed and every sin I've committed and every sin the world has committed, has those sins on his shoulders. And in this mysterious moment, God turns his back on the son. So Jesus cries out, my God, my God, my father, my father, why have even you forsaken me? And a lot of commentators say that Jesus was saying, I don't know how much longer I can do this cried out these loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now, that was only God. And he was heard because of his reverence. You say, well, he wasn't heard. He died. Well, he was heard because he did what? He rose from the dead. 
and he was heard because of his reverence. The better word there is because of his submission. He submitted himself to the will of God all the way to the end. Not your will, not my will, he said, but your will be done. Look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Again, the only verse in the, in, in the New Testament where Jesus is the subject and the verb is learn. How, how, there's a bit of a mystery here. How did Jesus, who knew everything, learn anything? We get that same mystery in Luke chapter 2 uh, where uh, Luke says that Jesus grew in grew in wisdom, how would he grow in wisdom, and stature and favor with God and man. So the question is, is this question has baffled theologians for years. How did that happen? Now, some, of, some say, well, it's, it's like in uh, Hebrews chapter 2 when uh, Paul says Jesus emptied himself. And so when Jesus was on earth, some would say, when Jesus was on earth, he, he, he emptied him, he, um, he put down his um, omniscience. Well, that's a problem, right? Because if Jesus put down his omniscience and wasn't omniscient when he walked on earth, what would that mean? He's not God. He's not fully God. And he has to be fully God and fully man. Here's a better way to think about it. Jesus didn't surrender the attributes of God. Rather, he surrendered the right to use them independently. He surrendered the right to use them in any way the Father did not want him to use them. And so in Scripture, you've got sometimes when, when Jesus says he didn't, he didn't know something, he, is, he, has, he has put down that right to know that independently. For instance, Mark chapter 13, verse 32 talking about the last times, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So Jesus has chosen to surrender the use of that independently to God. Now, on the other hand, uh, on chapter, uh, John chapter 6, verse 64, it says, Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and uh, who it was who would betray him. So there are some things he chooses to surrender. He doesn't, lose the, he doesn't lose his omniscience, but he chooses to surrender it to God independently. And it's the Father who knows certain things, as we see in Mark 13. The real thing here is he learned, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He, 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 he acquired what it was like to be a human. He would know that because he knows everything. But he experienced, experienced and, and, and acquired what it was like to weep, what it was like to be in pain, what it was like to be rejected. And he did that, why? So he could sympathize with us. Back to that Hebrews 4 passage. So that he was tempted in every area as we are, yet without sin. And now we can go to him with confidence because Jesus understands. Whatever, whatever you're going through, Jesus understands it. Look at verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe. And being made perfect. That does not mean he was imperfect and through his suffering he became 
perfect. It means that and being made complete. As he walked on earth, if Jesus hadn't gone to the cross, he wouldn't have been our savior. He couldn't have been our savior. But he went to the cross. He died for our sins, surrendered his life. He surrendered himself to the will of the father. God heard his and saw his submission and raised him from the dead. And now he's perfect. He completed everything. It's all complete in Jesus. That's why the writer told us earlier, he sat down at the right hand of God. We also see here that he became the source of eternal salvation. Salvation is only through Jesus. He's the beginning of salvation when we trust in him. He empowers us to live a life that pleases him. And he's the source of eternal salvation. When you're talking about salvation, it is all about Jesus. He is the source, and he's the source of all who obey him. Now, let's think about that real quick. If he's the source of all who obey him, you could say, well, I have to obey him so that he can be my savior, right? And a lot of people think that. I got to get my act cleaned up. I got to be obedient. I got to be, you know, I'm doing some stuff I shouldn't do, so I got to start obeying. Then he can be my savior. Not what this verse is saying. That's not what scripture is saying. If that was the case, that were the case, what would it be? Salvation by works. You got to do something in order to be saved. The obedience here by all who obey him, the obedience here is, is very simple. The greatest obedience of trusting in Jesus alone is the only way to have a relationship with the living God. By the way, have you done that? I'm not talking about signing a card or raising your hand. Do you know for certain you've trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with the living God? Do you know that he is the source of eternal salvation? Uh, any of you, um, uh, any of you uh, see any of the uh, congressional hearings this week? Uh, there was a guy, uh, Russell Vaught, he was from Wheaton, a strong believer, um, deputy secretary of something or another, and he's going through these congressional hearings, and Bernie Sanders challenges his faith in Jesus Christ in these hearings. Here's what Sanders says. I don't know how many Muslims there are in America. I really don't know, probably a couple million are you suggesting that all the people who uh, that are you suggesting that all those people stand condemned? What about the Jews? Do they stand condemned too? Demanded Sanders, uh, uh, himself a secular Jew. I understand that Christianity is the majority religion, but there are other people who have different religions in this country and around the world. In their judgment, do you think that people uh, who are not Christians are going to be condemned? That was in the congressional hearings. I went on, I think, for about three minutes. And uh, Vought kept saying, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. Now, it's a little concerning, right? And a lot of people, because we love to mix religion and politics, who will get really fired up about this. I've already had people come and say, I'm really fired up about that. Let me tell you what fires me up. In that same article, Lifeway Research research pastors and, and Protestants around our country, and 25% of Protestant pastors said Jesus is not the only way to God. And 50% of Protestants said, yeah, I'm sure there are other ways to God too. 
That should fire us up. You see, guys, it starts right here in the church. Do you know for certain, one, that you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone as your personal Savior? And can you explain to a person, not in a congressional hearing, maybe a person in your home, maybe your kids, if your kid came to you and said, hey, I, Jesus, the only way, that sounds a little weird to me. Can you explain that? As parents, you've got to be able to explain that, why Jesus is the only way. That's not narrow. That's not bigoted. That is the great act of God's love and grace that he would provide a Savior for us. Yes, we are all condemned without Jesus. And we've got to be able to know why that's true. We've got to be able to share that message urgently. And we've got to be able to stand, even if we stand alone, to say, I don't care what you call me. I don't care what you think. I'm telling you, this is a great act of love. And Jesus is not one of the ways to God or a good way to God. He is it. Only God, only man. He came and died for us on a cross. Quick illustration. I got to, I'm way behind. I got to hurry. I'm going to get in trouble again for being late, but here we go. We're at our campuses and a fire starts. I've heard, shared this before. A fire starts. And Aaron DeBerry and in Wilkesburg and Washington and, and, uh, and Robinson and uh, Ross Traver, we can't get out. The exits are closed. We cannot get out. So we're it, man. We're in here and we're going to die. No two ways about it. And we're just getting prepared for the end. And, and, and right at that point, at the wall of our church, maybe here in the South Hills, wall there in Robinson and Wilkinsburg and in Washington, DeBerry, the wall starts to give and, and we see this ax coming through and a, and a fireman breaks a hole through the wall. And the fireman says, hey, guys, over here, this way out. Let's go. Let's escape. And we say, you bigoted fireman, only one way? Are you serious? You're narrow-minded. You're only giving us one opportunity to get out of here? That wouldn't be it. We would, in a very orderly way, right, (laughs) get out of here. That one way, and we would thank that fireman profusely for saving our life. That's what Jesus has done. He's it. That's not narrow. It's called grace. It's not bigoted. That's called love. And we have to be those who stand up and explain that and shame on us if we haven't explained that to our kids. Shame on us if we can't explain it to our kids. Shame on us if we're backing down on that truth like half of those who sit in Protestant services today are doing. Guys, this is urgent stuff, isn't it? This is serious stuff. And it's not about Washington, D.C. It's about the churches right here. And if we would get half as upset about what's going on in our churches and half as passionate about sharing the message of Christ as we do about what we see in Washington we would see tremendous impact in our country. But Satan likes to keep us distracted, doesn't he? We like to talk about Bernie Sanders. What would you expect Bernie Sanders to say? He's a secular Jew. 
What would you expect him to say? You really think he's going to talk about Christ? He said what you'd expect him to say. Believers act how unbelievers, or unbelievers act how unbelievers act. We have the message of eternal hope. We've got to share it. It's got to start in our home. It's got to start with us, right? Do you know for certain? Mirko, uh, he, uh, he went out to camp uh, the last day, and he shared uh, with some high school students. And he shared with them how to make decisions. And then he said, but the greatest decision you're going to make is trusting in Jesus Christ alone as your personal Savior. And then he told about how he had done that. And Mirko said this, I know this. If I would die today, I know for certain I'd go to heaven. And they ended that passage in Philippians. For me to live is what? Christ to die is gain. Little did he know, he drove back from Shamay to Panama City and God was going to call him home. And none of us in here have a guarantee for our next breath, yet another minute, yet another day. That's why this is urgent that you know it and that you share it with your kids and that they understand why Jesus is the only way, the only way, the source of salvation, the author of salvation, the only way to have a relationship with the living God.